My name is Rüdiger Wolfram. I'm judge at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, situated in Hamburg. I'm also in, uh, in the academic world and a director at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public and International Law in Heidelberg. And I also teach at the Law School of the University of Heidelberg. My lecture this morning will be on legitimacy of international law from a legal per perspective. It will be an introduction. Perhaps you will not get all your questions answers uh, you might like to get answered. The question of legitimacy of international law in general has to be uh, subdivided into two, namely whether it's appropriate to raise the question of legitimacy in international law and if the answer is affirmative, what does legitimacy mean in the context of international law and where does it lead to? In recent years, the question concerning uh, the legitimacy of international law has been discuss uh, discussed quite intensively. The focus of the questions raised varies considerably. Only some of the questions raised will be mentioned here. Such questions are, for example, is international law lacking legitimacy in general? Has international law or parts of it yielded to uh, the facts of power? May adherence to international legal commitments be subordinated to self-defined national interests? Has international law or have particular rules of it, such as the prohibition of the use of force, uh, lost its power to induce compliance? And what is the relevance of non-enforcement or non-obedience for the legitimacy of that particular international norm? The fact that seemingly identical questions concerning the legitimacy of international law, or parts thereof, are being raised sometimes a camouflage that their authors represent different approaches towards international law and thus pursue different objectives. Although this may be considered an oversimplification, four such schools are being identified and addressed here. One school of thought argues that international law lacks legitimacy, at least if compared with the legitimacy of, of national democratic governance, and therefore less authoritative weight should be given to international law. This school of thought, which actually may be perceived as reviving ideas voiced by Carl Schmitt, and his school seems to be driven by the consideration that international law is uh, to be seen from the perspective of national law of national interests. The view of international relations by the school of Carl Schmitt is state-centered, international law being perceived as directly controlled by each single state. Another school of thought seems to argue that Due to global developments, international institutions should be remodeled with a view to increase or even establish their legitimacy to meet new global challenges by establishing organs 
which may exercise parliamentary and governmental functions, all by increasing the influence of NGOs. This development is being seen as the institutional consequence of, of globalization. The objectives pursued by both schools of thought are diametrically opposed, since the former is concerned with the protection of the autonomy of democratically elected governments to act as required by states' interest, at least as they perceive their interest, whereas the latter intends to replace or to supplement national governance by democratically legitimate world institutions, such as a world government or world parliament. Nevertheless, they coincide in one point. Both have in common that they consider legitimacy of international law from the point of view of democratic legitimacy of national governance. Whether or to what extent this starting point is appropriate for international law is open for challenge. One may identify two further schools of thought. One school raises this question whether the legitimacy of international law with a view to enhance the acceptability of the latter. This school of thought is not concerned with the establishment of new international institutions, but rather with adapting the traditional means of norm developing and their content, determinancy, symbolic validation, coherence and adherence to the needs of a globalized world. The second school of thought in this context, actually the fourth one, uh, which considering modern and normative developments in international law as a form of international governance, advocates strengthening the national parliamentarian influence on the conduct of international relations, which is, I have to emphasize, traditionally thought to be the domain of the executive. This approach is inspired by the consideration that international law has reached, at least in some of its parts, a different quality which may be referred to as international governance. It perceives that governance undertaken on whichever level requires legitimacy. The two latter approaches sketched out here start from the same point of view, namely that certain parts of international law may have a legitimacy deficit. They seek to cure this deficit at different levels, though, where the first school of thought intends to improve the mechanisms of international law, the second one attempts to strengthen national legitimacy and the respective legitimacy chain parliament towards governments. Well, the approaches advocated by those two schools of thought are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They assess and approach an identified problem from different uh, sides and thus complement each other. My contribution will deal with two issues, thus hoping to contribute to the ongoing discussion. It will briefly summarize the reasons why it is possible to speak of the development of international governance, which is disputed, and thus why the quest for legitimacy of international law has become 
and rightly has become an issue. This is done without questioning the relevance of international law as law. On this basis, the contribution will discuss to what extent, proceeding from a model of legitimacy as developed over centuries for democratic national governments, is adequate for international law at all. Let me now turn to legitimacy and public international law based on state consent. The term legitimacy is being used differently, although it mostly means to refer to the justification of authority. The notion being understood with the equivalent of having the power to take binding decisions or prescribe binding rules. Such decisions or rules may be general or specific in nature. The distinction may be of relevance for their legitimacy. Different approaches are discussed concerning the elements which may induce legitimacy of a particular authority. Theoretically, they may be source, procedure, or result-oriented, or a combination thereof. Let me explain that. Authority can be legitimated by its source of origin. For public international law, legitimacy rests, at least to, according to the traditional view, in the consent of states concerned. According to this view, international law is based upon the assumption that states have the possibility to negotiate and to adhere to international agreements. By doing so, they accept obligations vis-a-vis -vis the other partners to that agreement or vis-a-vis -vis a larger community, such as the Law of the Sea Treaty. They also have the possibility to commit themselves unilaterally. Authority can also legitimize by uh, the decision in question are taken in procedures considering to be adequate or fair. Rules concerning the composition or establishment of an institution and its rules governing decision-making processes are to be seen from this point of view. Procedures are rather adhering to a pre-agreed procedure thus has a legitimizing effect in international law as it has in national law. In that respect, the two sets of rules don't differ at all. In this respect, it is to be mentioned that legitimacy may be also depend on who participates in the decision-making process. For example, when professional judges considered expert opinions in their decision-making process, which is possible, this may increase the objective legitimacy of a judgment. Whereas opening up proceedings to allow interested uh, third parties to participate in the form of amicus curiae briefs or by in intervention, may increase the subjective legitimacy of a decision. Finally, it has been argued that authority can be legitimized or delegitimized by the outcome of its, uh, it produces. This is a crucial and perhaps a very critical issue and an issue which deserves, uh, deserves future further considerations. If a particular body 
such as a Security Council or an International Court of Tribunal, although being established according to the applicable rules and taking decisions according to the established procedure, does not achieve results which the community or as the addressee of these decisions considered to be adequate, this may, in the long run, lead to an erosion of its legitimacy. The fate of the UN Human Rights Commission is an example to this extent. Uh, the political dissatisfaction with the UN Human Rights Commission has led to the establishment of the Human Rights Council, whose composition is different from the former Human Rights Commission. It is in this context of particular relevance that a member to the Human Rights Commission, I mean, a uh, committee, I mean, a council uh, state, may be expelled if it violates internationally protected human rights significantly and systematically. However, having said that, uh, one uh, cannot and does not mean that the legitimacy of an international body should be judged merely as to whether the results or the decisions are considered to be satisfactory. Then every judgment you don't like would render the legitimacy of the respective tribunal into question, a very inappropriate result. Let me now come to the legitimization through consent by states. A discussion on legitimacy in international law should proceed from international treaties as the main source of international law. International treaty law is being developed on a consensual basis. States' representatives negotiate international rules, which subsequently are being adopted by the national institutions in a procedure designed by national law. Thus, it is for national law to ensure that there is a legitimacy chain justifying the implementation of the ensuing international obligation through national institutions. As a matter of principle, it is safe to say that, as far as a consent-based international law is concerned, the legitimacy of consequential implementation is to be established through nationally established mechanisms. International law has rarely its own implementation mechanisms. It always, or nearly always, relies on national mechanisms. This, however, raises a generic question, namely, how such chain of legitimacy may be established in the case that some of the participating states are not democratically structured. Does this mean that the respective international law lacks legitimacy for that reason and that one has to distinguish between international law as agreed among democratic states and other international law? This sounds strange, but in literature, this approach has been pursued. The respective author argue that less legal relevance should be given to those international commitments which include non-democratic states. From the point of view of international law, several arguments 
may and should be advanced to question such an approach. I find it personally unsustainable. Although one may identify an increasing tendency in international law to induce states to establish a democratic national structure by providing for democratic elections, for example, and to abide by the rules of law. This is even being discussed in the context of the Security Council. International law does not provide automatic sanctions against states that are organized on a different basis. The more powerful arguments against this view that international law lacks legitimacy if it results from an agreement with non-democratic states is that this would, in the last consequence, jeopardize the possibility to influence such, such states through international law, for example, with a view to adopt democratic governmental structures. The whole Helsinki Accord would be delegitimized if one would take such an approach. The situation in respect of customary international law is different depending upon what is considered the legitimizing source of customary international law. If customary international law is understood as a tacit agreement of the states concerned, then its ultimate source is a consent of states. This view has been uh, taken by several very eminent authors. The situation is more complex if one considers the source of customary international law to be the fictitious consent of states a view I prefer. Still, it is possible that also under this approach to base customary international law upon voluntary acts of states which they undertake, being aware of the implications for the possible development of customary international law. Otherwise, they may persistently object. When state consent is considered as legitimizing international legal commitments, it is not always realized that such commitments may be different in nature, which again influences the meaning and the scope of the consent. In reality, consent can have two different meanings, namely a specific and a static one, referring to a particularly clearly defined obligation, and a more general or dynamic one, referring to the establishment of a regime or system of governments which, after having been agreed upon and set up by consent, develops a life of its own, a legal life, I mean. The essential difference rests in the formulation of obligations. Specific and static obligations are honored by one act or by preserving a particular situation. The obligation does not change over time. The obligation to hand over a piece of land is honored by handing it over. That ends it. In comparison, therefore, a general and dynamic com commitment embraces a mandate for the established international body through which the substance and the scope of the original obligation may be modified. These two options are not as clearly distinct as one may assume. Gliding transitions exist. However, 
Both options raise different questions concerning legitimizing effect of state consent. The consent of a state concerned will undoubtedly be sufficient as a mechanism to invoke the legitimacy of a respective measure if the application is a specific and a static one and can be implemented by one isolated act or omission. The same is true even if the obligation is of a continuing nature, nature but the commitment does not change over time as far as substance and scope is concerned, not to resort to war. That's a continuing commitment, but it doesn't change. There is de facto the danger, though, that the legitimizing effect of the original consent may fa fade over time. This would be particularly true if due to changing circumstances, the burden to implement a given obligation increases significantly. Nevertheless, international law proceeds from the assumption that the establishment of continuous obligations is possible by an original consent. The mechanism to re-establish legitimacy if such obligation has changed over time and has thus become illegitimate is either through uh, uh, a review procedure or having recourse to the clausula rebus sextantipus. In particular, the latter is meant, within some limits, to readjust continuing legal obligations to the equilibrium originally envisaged by the partners. Let me explain these more extract arguments uh, by referring to one example. When the UN Charter was adopted, one felt one had a clear-cut understanding of what meant the notion of world peace. Today, the scope of that term has been broadened and, in consequence thereof, also the functions of the Security Council. I believe that clarifies this point. Now, is consent an adequate form of legitimization of international governance? It is widely accepted that international law has changed in the last decades as far as its scope and the, its impact on national law is concerned. It, uh, its addresses, the procedures through which international norms are being created, and the value system upon which public international law is being based. When I started learning international law myself, some decades away, international law was mostly customary international law. And um, most of today's international law was not even in existence. For example, international environmental law, even the word environment did not exist. Considering this factual situation, it has been argued that, at least in some respect, international law has developed in some form of international governance which makes it necessary to reconsider its legitimacy. If states have indeed agreed to establish regimes or systems of international government endowed with quasi-legislative or adjudicative competences, this constitutes uh, some form of governance 
and thus a challenge to legitimacy. The cases where one may truly speak of international governments to be compared with national governments are, however, still rare. The most frequently quoted example are the individual sanctions system of the Security Council, but in uh, the realm of international environment law, further examples exist. However, having said that these cases are rare, this neither abolishes the articulated problem nor really ameliorates it. Apart from the few cases where international institutions have been endowed with truly legislative functions, international law has developed sub subtle forms of establishing norms or to influence the national administrations, although maybe not really directly. Finally, a growing number of international adjudicative bodies have been developed recently, the decisions of some of which directly affect individuals. For example, under the World Trade Regime, an adjudicative system has been develop developed, whereas WTO has neither legislative nor executive functions going beyond the realm of WTO. Nevertheless, the legitimacy of WTO has been put into question. The reasons advanced are not necessarily identical. They may root in a broad perception of the necessity for legitimacy or a broad understanding of what constitutes governance or both. But apart from these instances where Ex which exercise functions which at least in part resemble national governance. Concerned about legitimacy deficit have been raised vis-a-vis -vis international organizations in general for the reason that they affect the welfare of people in general and that the chains of delegation between citizens and agents of global governments are too attenuated. The divergent views about legitimacy in international law, or more appropriately, about when and why the legitimacy of international law may be challenged, makes it necessary to more profoundly deal with the question which forms of international governments require legitimization. Otherwise, the danger exists that the notion of legitimacy becomes a mechanism purely to deny the relevance of international law in all those cases where short-term national interests seem to recommend such an approach. It is commonly acknowledged that international law increasingly supplements legal norms which used to have national, a national basis. However, this does not amount to governance in the meaning used in respect of governance exercised by states. Firstly, international law has a sectoral approach compared to the general competences exercised by a state. Secondly, international law supplements national law on the levels of norm setting, whereas the execution of such norms in general rests with states. Even the exercise of adjudicative functions on the international level is, let's face it, an exception. We have the criminal courts, but that's 
exceptional. In spite of these differences, the fact remains that states are increasingly bound by international norms. Hence, referring thereto as international governance and recognizing matching legitimization must mean to seek for a legitimization which in form and content reflects the nature of national law, international law governance as well as the interaction between state governance and the respective international institutions. This is perhaps diplomatically phrased, but what I do is to criticize, to take over the forms and mechanisms of legitimization from national law one by one to the international level. This is inappropriate. In the following, some examples will be referred to illustrating the increased scope of international law, the modification concerning addressees, and the modifications in respect of the procedure to develop international law. It is certainly a question whether and to what extent uh, they meet the sustainability test concerning legitimacy through the original con consent. It is commonly acknowledged that international law increasingly supplements legal norms which used to have na a national basis. However, this does not amount to governance in the meaning used in respect of governance exercised by states. Firstly, international law has a sectoral approach compared to the general competences exercised by states. Secondly, International law supplements national laws on the level of norm setting, whereas the execution of such norms in general rests with states. Even the exercise of adjudicative functions on the international level is the exception. We have uh, now three international criminal courts, but still this is an exception. In spite of these uh, differences, the fact remains that states are increasingly bound by international norms. Hence, referring thereto as international governance and requesting a matching legitimization must mean to seek for a legitimization which in form and content reflects the nature of international governance as well as the interaction between state governments and the respective international institutions. I am, uh, I have worded it uh, a bit more diplomatically, arguing against any attempt to use the mechanisms developed in national law one by one in international law. In the following, some examples will be referred to illustrating the increased scope of international law, the modifications concerning addressees, and the modifications in respect of the procedure to develop international norms. It is certainly a question whether and to what extent they meet the sustainability test concerning legitimacy through original consent. It is a fact that international law increasingly affects or even regulates areas which had traditionally belonged to the realm of national law. This is particularly true for human rights issues, environmental law, 
economic law, and even issues concerning national governance. The respective international rules leave the national governments only limited leeway as far as norm setting is concerned. As an example, one may refer to some more recent national constitutions, which even have incorporated international human rights regimes in their totality. Therefore, one may say that the notion of domaine réservé, as referred to in Article 2, paragraph 2, uh, paragraph 7, sorry, UN Charter, has lost, if not all, but much of its traditional meaning. There are very few legal issues left which may be considered to be absolutely immune against uh, being influenced through international law. Although the respective international rules have to be implemented on the national level, these rules are the outcome of an international process and reflect the will of an international body rather than the will of a legislature representing the will of people of a particular state. This is not necessarily the consequence of globalization, although this phenomenon has not only accelerated this process, but also has opened additional areas for international regulation. That international law increasingly limits the competences of states is particularly true for economic law, International law prescribes to which extent national borders have to be opened. A certain kind of beef, certain chicken. The erosion of national competences as far as the protection of human rights are concerned, the protection of the environment or how to govern international commons, such as high seas, outer space, and perhaps Antarctica, has a somewhat different origin although the underlying motive and the effects on national autonomy are structurally the same. As already indicated, international law increasingly addresses individuals directly or indirectly. The most recent example is Security Council Resolution 1672 of 25 April 2006, where sanctions have been adopted and states have been obliged to implement sanctions. In this respect, states are being transformed to enforcement agencies of the Security Council. It would not be fully correct to say that traditional international law addressed only states and had no impact on individuals, be it a positive or a negative one, except as a legal reflex. The use in Bello, the law in times of war, has always directly addressed individuals by either providing protection for civilians of wounded, prisoners of war, or by limiting the means of warfare. The jurisprudence of the international, two international military tribunals after the Second World War reflects this, although the prosecution of war criminals dates back far longer. This trend has been taken up again and strengthened by the establishment of the two ad hoc criminal courts and the establishment of mixed criminal courts and the ICC, the International Criminal Court.
Another area where international law addresses individuals is a regime concerning the protection of minorities. The protection of individuals, which to a certain extent builds thereupon, has reached a further dimension after the Second World War. It has been broadened and institutionally consolidated. Reference is to be made in this respect to the universal and regional human rights regimes, in particular the regional human rights courts in the American, African, European. However, this development of international law of benefiting or obliging individuals has also affected economic law as evidenced by the jurisprudence of the various arbitral tribunals on investment disputes. International law also addresses corporations. This, is, this development is but a matter of consequence. Multinational corporations transgress national borders and thus have become addressees of international law or even partners to international organizations such as the UN. As far as the procedure of norm setting is concerned, international law is by now being progressively developed not only by international agreements, but by other much more flexible means. In particular, international environmental law has made use of the mechanism that international treaties may be developed further by decisions of meetings of states' parties. The respective international treaties mandate the meeting of states' parties to progressively develop norms within the framework of that treaty. The norms resulting therefrom are not merely of a technical nature, but often uh, constitute either additional obligations for states or even corporations and individuals, or they accelerate the implementation of that obligations already taken. For example, the Mont Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer provides that uh, controls may be tightened on controlled substances by a qualified majority vote. The respective decision subjects the minority to a majority will, since such adjustment measures are binding upon all parties of the Montreal Protocol. Certainly, such norms have to be implemented in national law, which the states have virtually no discretion. Here again, they, may, they act more like implementing agencies, even meeting of states' parties not endowed with competences similar to that one of the meeting of states' parties of the Montreal Protocol, are beginning to, to develop policies for progressive development of the treaty regime they are working under. For example, the meeting of states' parties to the Convention on the Law of the Sea not only elects the judges to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and decides on the budget of the tribunal and the International Seabed Authority, but also formulates policies in respect of marine law and policy. Certainly, such policy can only be implemented through additional instruments, 
whose development depends upon the respective consent of states. Nevertheless, such policy decisions of meetings of states' parties result in a pre-formulation which may have a significant prejudicial effect concerning the subsequent treaty law. You may consider that under perhaps a catchword of a cascade effect. First level, second level, third level. Political decisions, legal decisions, and finally national law. Further international organizations have progressively developed their mandate by reinterpreting or adapting it to new situations. The new uh, security strategy of NATO, for example, was a result of such development. The legality of this strategy was, from the point of view of the prerogatives of the German Bundestag, in the, in the accession to international treaties challenged before the German Federal Constitutional Court. The court held that the original consent given by the German Bundestag also covered later tacit modifications. From uh, the position that legitimacy must reflect an ongoing consent of states and uh, the organs in charge in respect of the dynamic character of global institutions, this decision may be and has been questioned. The Security Council, referring to another example, not only interpreted its mandate broadly, but also assumed new functions. Making use of its power under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, it has acted in at least two cases as an international legislator, namely in respect of terrorism and against proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. The establishment of the two ad hoc criminal tribunals may also be qualified as acts of norm setting. Although law making by the security Council is undertaking in a process which is not different from the process of taking Security Council decisions in general. And although the distinction between applying law and legislation is actually a gradual one, it is evident that the decisions of the Security Council referred to have reached a different quality. They are based on an interpretation of its mandate under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which gives the notion, threat to peace, a broad meaning. What goes beyond the traditional interpretation of Article 39 of the UN Charter are two things, namely, that not only states, but also groups of individuals may be considered a threat to international peace, and that not only isolated incidents, but also general situations may qualify as, uh, as such and trigger action by the Security Council under Chapter 7. Accordingly, the respective decisions deal with a general uh, situation and require states to take action not only to deal with a particular incident, but to enact national legislation to face general problems, namely terrorism and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. 
This raises the question whether the original consent of states expressed when ratifying the UN Charter constitutes the adequate mechanism to induce legitimacy. In dealing with this question, it should be taken into consideration whether states are reduced by such resolutions as Security Council 1673 to mere implementation agencies. The examples given in respect of the Security Council and NATO only are indicative for a trend as far as the functioning of international organizations is concerned. This trend has resulted in strengthening the functions of international organizations vis-à-vis -vis their members, states, certainly they remain, I mean the organizations, derived institutions created by the will of national governments and acting under their control and none of them has reached the independence of the European Union with an equivalent broad mandate yet. Such derivation and control of international organization rests though with the national government, whereas national democratic legitimacy is based upon, at least in principle, the people's consent. Even if the democratic character of any member state is taken into account, as well as the democratic values of uh, values, the connection between people and international organizations remains a mediated and remote one. The broadening of the mandate of international organizations, combined with a more effective decision-making process, and in particular the strengthening of their secretariats, results in an enhanced independence of such organizations, at the same time weakening the possibility of governments to control them, although their collective control is not put into question. Even if one cannot speak of international governance in the strict meaning of the word, still uh, the legitimizing effect of the original state consent to the establishment of the respective international organization and the involvement of state officials in the organs of the organizations may not be considered adequate to cover the new developments. An example for the establishment of institutions which may assume greater responsibility, somewhat detached from states, are also treaty bodies, such as the Human Rights Committee, established by the International Covenant on Civil and, uh, uh, Civil and Political Rights. Their mandate is to monitor the implementation of an international agreement. Part of their mandate is also to provide for an interpretation of the provisions of the instrument whose ins implementation they monitor through general comments or general recommendations. Although it is a matter of discussion to what extent such interpretation is authentic and whether it may be considered as being binding upon the parties to the respective instrument, it certainly carries some weight and it is certainly binding upon the committee itself. The contribution of such general comment or recommendation should not be underestimated. For example, 
The US government criticized the general comment of the Human Rights Committee on Article 2, Paragraph 1 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the way how the group of rapporteurs of the Commission on Human Rights had made use of its assessment uh, of a particular situation. This criticism voiced also, was voiced by also by other states. Leaving aside this criticism and concentrating on the generic problem, it can hardly be denied that the influence of these bodies has increased. This raises the question whether the composition of such body, in particular the mode of their, the election of their members, is adequate from the point of view of inducing the legitimacy of their activities. First, it should be mentioned in this context that groups of experts or practitioners may contribute to the development of the body of international law. The Lex Mercatoria may serve just as one example. An example from a different area of international law may further underline this point. The Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, a body composed of experts, established pursuant to Annex uh, 2 of the Convention on the Law of the Sea, is mandated to assist coastal states in defining the limits of the outer continental shelf. The limits established in accordance with the recommendations of the Commission are final and binding. When I speak of limits established, I mean the limits established by national governments, including the parliaments. This means norm setting ergo omnis in what may be qualified a discourse between a state and an international group of experts, this commission. What should be mentioned in this context too is that only states parties to the Convention on the Law of the Sea may benefit from this process. States having refrained from joining the Convention have no means to claim an outer limit of their continental shelf to be recognized by the international community. Finally, the establishment of new institutions on the settlement of international disputes, the revival of existing ones, and the creation of new mechanisms to monitor the implementation of international obligations is to be mentioned in this context. Such international courts, tribunals, or compliance committees not only apply the respective instrument, strict to censor, but also add explicit or implicitly to the understanding of the norm in question. Taking into consideration that international law, treaty law as well as customary international law, is by its very nature less concrete, the contribution of these institutions to the corpus of international law should not be underestimated. There is a trend that individuals are taking an increasingly prominent role in international dispute settlement. This role was already well established in the context of investment disputes, but it is beginning to permeate the arrangements for international dispute settlement procedures uh, 
No. The most noticeable contemporary step in providing direct access of individuals to international dispute settlement procedures was provided for by the 1965 Convention on the Settlement of Investment Disputes between States and Nations of Other States. These international agreements make arbitration and conciliation procedure available for foreign investment and thus restrains them from having recourse to the traditional means of diplomatic protection. Now this, in effect, minimizes states' intervention in international disputes and underlines the individual's own responsibility in protecting its rights vis-a-vis -vis other states. The system of settling disputes of individuals with states has been further developed under the regime of NAFTA and the European Union. The last three examples, treaty bodies, experts groups, international courts and tribunals, have one element in common. They are all composed of experts. This also includes judges. The term being understood as being a person of a particular experience or knowledge which has been recognized internationally and in a particular procedure. If this factor combined with the factor that they are ex elected for a limited period only by a clearly defined group of states sufficient to induce the legitimacy of their impact on the formation of international law in general or in specific cases? If the answer uh, uh, there too is affirmative, the use of experts could become an additional end element in inducing legitimacy. In this respect, international law may differ from national law. Is there really a legitimacy deficit in international law? And if so, for what reason? Let me now come to my final and most crucial question. Street trends may be identified in the actual development of international law. As far as the creation of norms is concerned, a factual shift of competences from the national to an international level can be witnessed. It is perhaps imperative to acknowledge that such a shift of competences is of a different nature compared to the shift of competences from the state to the federal level as provided for in the constitution of a federal state. Nevertheless, such a shift is a reality as, for example, the WTO regime proves. According thereto, states may internationally, intru nationally introduce restrictions upon the freedom of trading goods only if the conditions under Article 20 got uh, general agreement on trades and tariffs are met. This shift may be characterized by the term denationalization in favor of internationalization and, and what is, that is always forgotten, deparliamentarization in favor of strengthening the role of the executive. Another trend is that increasingly individuals, including corporations, have become addressees of international law.
finally, the role of the judicial settlement of legal disputes has been strengthened in this respect. What is common to all these new trends is that the direct influence of national governments and even more so of the national legislature on the shaping of an international law in general or international law decisions has been reduced and the chain of legitimacy towards the people has been further mediated. Do these changes in international law suggest that it is no longer sufficient to base it on a legitimacy of consensual obligations as it was considered sufficient for a long period? Is it now necessary that international law meets the test of legitimacy modeled on democratic principles? It has to be accepted that in some areas international law has mutated into what may be qualified as international governance to be compared with governance on the national level. In respect of these areas, and I emphasize only these areas, it is called for to inquire into the legitimacy of the rules and decisions which are produced therefrom. Recourse to the legitimacy as provided for by original consent of the states concerned does not seem to suffice for them. In all the cases referred to, the original consent seems to be too attenuated to provide an unproblematic basis of legitimacies. There's one further problem to be taken into account. Negotiations undertaken to establish international institutions entrusted or by their very nature capable of assuming governance functions on the international level as well as the ensuing deliberations within these institutions undertaken by the representatives of the executive only. That's why I spoke a minute ago about deparliamentarization. Therefore, the transfer of legislative competences to the international level by setting up such instant international institution not only results in a denationalization of legal issues, but equally, as I said, in their deparliamentarization. Looking more closely, one has to acknowledge that the legitimacy deficit have different roots. Whereas in respect of international agreements which have received parliamentary approval, but which are developed without such involvement of parliament, the problem rests in the fact that the original parliamentary consent does not cover further developments. The situation in respect of international law originating from international organizations is different. Here, one can hardly speak of parliaments having approved such norms at all. The lack of legitimacy results from the fact that the original consent by states, including the involvement of the legislature, is modeled so as to endorse nationally concrete or static rather than general and dynamic commitments. Although the national executive is meant to be in control of international organizations and other international bodies, the influence of each single state executive is in fact very limited. This is due to several factors. The growing influence of international bureaucracy, 
the complexity of the subject matter, and the fact that the norm-creating process in such international organizations and body lacks transparency. The ensuing negative consequences for legitimacy in the original sense is intensified by the fact that the influence on the progressive development of the respective international norms is subtle and takes place in forms which do not make it necessary or even po uh, possible to have the legislature involved. The latter aspect is in particular evident when international organizations are broadening their functions through a respective interpretation of the original mandate. Furthermore, there are few effective accountability mechanisms in place which could help strengthen legitimacy. Finally, one has to accept that more international law directly addresses individuals. This includes cases where states have to implement the respective measures and are obliged to do so without having discretionary power in this respect and act like implementation agencies of the said international body. There is no discretionary left if the Security Council decides an individual sanction. It has to be enforced. The question of accountability, etc., is still an open one. How can this be solved? Let me come to some, I must confess, tentative conclusions. It is necessary clearly to distinguish between situations where there is no gap in legitimacy concerning international law and where the issue of legitimacy of international law is only invoked as a Trojan horse to put the relevance of international law in question. This is the case, for example, in respect of all treaty-based international obligations, where the ensuing obligation is a static one. Human rights, there is no question concerning legitimacy and none should be raised. The bulk of international law, treaty law would fall under this category. For example, such classical international treaties as the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties uh, on Diplomatic Relations, even uh, the uh, conventions uh, for Geneva Conventions, for example, the Convention for the Amelioration of the Conditions of the Wounded and Sick in Armed Forces in the Field, or for the Amelioration of the Conditions of Wounded, Sick and Shipwrecked Members of Armed Forces at Sea, uh, or the Convention Concerning Prisoners of War, are all international commitments which have the fullest legitimacy you can imagine. In contrast thereto, a gap of legitimacy may develop in respect to those instruments designed to progressively develop, for example, through additional instruments which do not require parliamentary consent or more informally through meetings of states' parties. I refer to the Montreal Protocol. Also, international organizations may fall into this category. However, whether or not a legitimacy deficit does exist cannot yet be decided on this basis, but only after an assessment of each single case. Let me now come 
to those cases where there may be a gap. Such gap of legitimacy can be filled either on the international or on the national level or on both. Remember my third and fourth approach in that respect right at the beginning of my presentation. It is doubtful whether it is necessary, possible or even advisable to attempt to invoke a democratization of international law in general. First of all, international governance is, so far, an isolated phenomenon, although the trend is increasing. Apart from that, it is incorrect to say that international law is lacking legitimacy in general. Improving the legitimacy of international governance should aim to find solutions within the existing matrix of international law. State consent and the national procedure establishing legitimacy of international commitments reflect that law is increasingly being developed and implemented on different levels. The implementation rests with states as it rests with them to contribute the necessary legitimacy. If there is agreement that the gap of the illegitimacy chain can be identified to be at the linkage between the international and the national level, it should be discussed which efforts are to be undertaken to reinforce this linkage, or in other words, to make this linkage more commensurate to the governmental authority exercised on the international level. Such need arises in all cases where legislative measures or individual acts are taken on the international uh, measures or decisions on the national level. The consent including the consequential approval of the competent national institutions as the major source of legitimacy is to be construed in a way that it covers the international commitment in its short as well as its, its long-term consequences. There are, a multiple, there are multiple options which may be chosen to achieve that objective on the national level. They cannot be identified and assessed in this contribution. They all would require strengthening the impact on and control of the legislature on the conduct of foreign relations. Diplomats will not agree with me. This could be undertaken so as to cover international relations in general, thus reflecting that the conduct of foreign relations due to the changed circumstances is a common responsibility of the executive and the legislature, and I emphasize the word common. Another option would be to provide for a qualified impact of the legislature in respect of the establishment of international organizations or fora likely to assume functions of international governance. And in this context, it is worth discussing too whether and to what extent non-governmental organizations may play a positive role in establishing legitimacy in respect of acts of international governance. Additional approaches are to be sought on the international level. One central element is to strengthen the legal legitimacies of measures derived from international governance, legal, legit uh, legal legitimacy being understood 
as the obligation to keep strictly within the frame of the original mandate. This refers to the option of inducing legitimacy through procedure. This would mean that as a matter of self-restraints, the respective institution, be it the Security Council, an international organization or a meeting of states parties, does not attempt to broaden its mandate, that it follows the procedure set out for decision-making. The logical consequence of enforcing legal legitimacy would be to strengthen the possibility of judicial review. This would be a matter of consequence considering the functions international governance is assuming. If international institutions are taking over governance, tasks equivalent to the ones of national institutions, and as one should add, to the detriment of the latter, they should come under the same restriction as national governments in states adhering to the principle of the rule of law. If, for example, the Security Council assumes legislative competences or even competences affecting rights of the individuals directly, such increase in power calls for counterbalance through judicial review on the international level. I may add, otherwise it will develop on the national level to the detriment of the Security Council. What is, however, important is to reconsider legitimacy in the context of international law. Is it really appropriate to copy from national constitutional law? International law has developed its own value system. It should be considered whether the new forms of international governments have their roots in the will of an international community, united by such system, and gain their legitimacy by conforming to such values. Finally, it may be worth exploring whether the involvement of international recognized experts constitutes another additional mechanism of inducing legitimacy. This mechanism is one followed by the human rights treaty bodies and, more pointedly, by the Legal and Technical Commission of the International Seabed Authority. Although this commission formally has merely consultative functions, as well as uh, the Commission on the Continental Shelf, which I mentioned earlier, as far as a review of formal written plans is concerned, such recommendations may only be overturned by the Council, a political body, by a qualified majority. When assessing international law in this respect, one has to realize that recourse to expert opinions plays a significant role in international law. The composition of international courts or tribunals, as well as the composition of the appellate body of WTO may be seen from this perspective. Perhaps it is time to develop a systematic approach in this respect which, in particular, should also clarify how such experts are being identified, the role of the national legislature, and the correlation between expert advice and decisions to be taken on the national level. Thank you very much.